Problem Gambling podcast is proudly sponsored by Gamban, the simple and effective way to block access to online gambling on all your devices. If willpower slips, Gamban doesn't. Go to gamban.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Problem Gambling podcast. I'm Barry Grant, an addiction counsellor with Extern Problem Gambling. And my co-host is Tony O'Reilly, also an addiction counsellor with the project and the co-author of the book, Tony 10. And today we thought we might touch on something that we touched on a little bit last week, which is the idea of shoulds and musts. And there's a great uh, psychotherapist, an American psychotherapist, Albert Ellis, who developed a psychotherapeutic theory or an approach called REBT, Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy, which came before CBT. And I think it's fair to say heavily (laughs) heavily influenced CBT. I think that's probably the nicest way of putting it. Uh, a lot of really cool stuff in, in his way of approaching things. I suppose one of the things that he spoke about is what he called the tyranny of shoulds and musts, uh, which he sometimes referred to as masturbation. Uh, but we'll call it the term <laughs> because we were raised in Catholic schools in Ireland, so we can't talk about things like masturbation. But anyway, shoulds and musts, we touched on it a little bit the last day. It's something comes up a lot in counselling sessions. That there's this cheesy old counsellor's trick where you know the client is saying, oh, I should do this and I must do that. And the counsellor goes, OK. Just say that sentence again without the word should. <laughs> and of course, it normally fries the person's brain because we use the word should as part of the language. We don't really think about what it's saying. And I think it's worth unpacking that a little bit today uh, because I think quite often what the word should is saying it's this judgmental way of kind of finger wagging. So, for example, you know, in my own life, let's say I start saying to myself, I should exercise more. That is absolutely true. I would benefit greatly from exercising more. Uh, but that doesn't mean I'm actually going to do that. Right? Should is really a way of saying I am not exercising as much as I think would be good for me. And I'm going to feel bad about it. Right. And I suppose maybe a healthier way of looking at that might be either I want to exercise more and I'm going to do it, or I do not want to exercise more and I'm going to enjoy my time sitting on the sofa, flicking through Netflix and not feel guilty about it. (laughs) That might be a healthier way of looking at it. Or what are your thoughts on should, Tony? A word that I banned from aftercare years ago, but it's when I was in Convera, but it's a word I use a lot as well. Um, and I suppose we can all also flip it around and look at the shoulds and shouldn'ts of um, recovery because people will say recovery should look like this or it shouldn't look like that. So it might be a good way to unpack it both ways, maybe, because as we know, recovery is personal to the individual. We can guide, we can create a space for change to happen, but there are plenty of um, ways, pathways into addiction, but there's also plenty of pathways of recovery as well. And sometimes the shoulds and the shouldn'ts is, is used in that context. And I suppose it's important that we unpackage that as well. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no one size fits all of recovery. I think maybe we've we certainly tried to get that idea across. Some people would disagree with us, which is totally fine as well. Some people very much have 
a one size fits all uh, approach to recovery or belief system around recovery, that's fine. If it's working for you, great. Um, but I suppose certainly yourself and myself would try and approach with the widest open kind of lens or the very open mind to what thing or what combination of things or what combination of approaches are going to work for an individual. That's it. So definitely that idea of recovery should look a certain way is quite limiting. It can be. You know, that's going to work for some people some of the time, uh, but it's going to exclude some people some of the time as well, unfortunately. So that's, I think that is an important part of it. But that idea of the shoulds and the musts, like within this cognitive behavioral therapy model, the CBT model, there's basically a three layer concept or a three layer theory around how our thoughts and beliefs work and i'll just take a, a minute to kind of have a look at that so at the surface layer the layer that we're most conscious of is what they call automatic thoughts and we've spoken about it before we've somewhere between sixty thousand and ninety thousand thoughts a day whoever figured that one out but it's it's in that ballpark all these researchers out there doing great stuff counting every single thought that somebody has in a day 60,000 to 90,000 thoughts a day, somewhere between 80 and 90% of those are automatic. It's just the mind on autopilot doing its own thing, right? And the other 10 to 20% is us actively thinking, uh, solving problems, making decisions, stuff like that. But the rest of the time, the vast, vast majority of the time, the thoughts, the thousands and thousands of thoughts that go through our heads are automatic, right? And quite often the focus in therapy is on the negative automatic thoughts. So in CBT, they sometimes call them NATS, negative automatic thoughts. And a substantial proportion of the thoughts that we have in our head are negative automatic thoughts. So we're conscious of those. That's that one person radio play that's going on in our head all of our waking hours. And then, of course, when we're dreaming, we have other stuff that's going on in that kind of metaphorical way of, of processing information through our dreams. But in our waking hours, you have this ongoing kind of monologue or dialogue in our head. That's the automatic thoughts. We're conscious of that. Sometimes we're overly conscious of it, and that can be quite debilitating. We can feel quite neurotic or paranoid, or it can be a driver of anxiety or stress or addiction for a lot of people. But that's the level that is in our perception the most underneath that level is a subconscious level that in CBT they call uh, rules and assumptions. So there are the, these rules, and this is where the shoulds and musts come in, and assumptions that we have about the world. So we might have a rule that all people must uh, be respectful towards me at all times, right? And if that's your hard and fast rule, you're going to be spend a certain proportion of your life feeling quite unhappy because that's just not a realistic rule to have in the world. It would be nice if that happened and it would be nice if everybody treated everyone else with respect and kindness and compassion. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry. Right. But many of us have that rule. And then when we brush up against people who don't abide by that rule, we can experience intense anger, fear, sadness, you name it, strong emotions because we have created a rule uh, or we've kind of been programmed into 
thinking that way, usually by caregivers when we're a child, created a rule that's very rigid. It's got a should or a must in it. It's got that rigidity. It doesn't have psychological flexibility, which is a much healthier way of thinking. And then below that level, again, is an even deeper level, which most of us are, are totally unaware of, which is what they call our core beliefs. And some of the common core beliefs that come up in counseling will be, I'm not worthy, I'm less than, I'm unlovable. There are loads more. But they would be very common ones that come up. And if you're, you have a core belief that you are less than, then the types of rules and assumptions that you have about the world will be driven by that core belief and other core beliefs that you have and the types of automatic thoughts that you have will reflect the rules and assumptions and the core belief that you have. Am I making any sense so far, Tony? Yeah, totally making sense because a lot of times when people finish therapy or finish um, even treatment center, going to a treatment center, it's that thing of I should feel better on myself. I should be, everything should be perfect. And then when sometimes you meet those challenges or those roadblocks or obstacles in the road or obstacles in your recovery, it does trigger that core belief that I'm not good enough. What, what's wrong with me? Why aren't I um, enjoying recovery? Why isn't this happening? Why aren't my family members on the same page? You know, I've gone through three months, four weeks, five weeks of treatment, and they're still the same. So like sometimes the, the should can be uh, towards family members or friends or colleagues as well, because sometimes when we go through the treatments and the other people don't get the benefit of that, why aren't they on the same page as me? They should be, you know, giving me my money back or my control and money back. They should be giving me um, trust back. And that can cause that inner conflict as well. And then that can automatically, that can have a knock on effect onto your core beliefs. And it's one that comes up for me a lot is that feeling of not being good enough. And sometimes if I'm saying, yeah, I should lose a couple of stone. And then if I don't, if I don't carry out that, process or if I don't go in or whatever I start kind of um you know you start tapping into that core belief I'm not good enough for your week or why, why can't you um do this you know you have to go gambling for 10 years but you can't give up chocolate for a week so it can give you that those it can drive those negative automatic thoughts and negative thoughts which can hamper recovery so yeah I definitely think the two of them are definitely interlinked yeah and that is a, an important one it's that reinforcing cycle of I think I'm not good enough or I think I'm less than, let's say. And then you go out into the world and you try stuff. And then if there's stuff that reinforces that belief, you you cling on to it, right? And you go, oh, look, I'll ignore the fact that I've given up a pretty severe gambling addiction, right? And I'm in recovery for 10 years. And I'll beat the shit out of myself for not being able to stay off chocolate bars for a week and that reinforces this core belief that I'm not good enough and I'll ignore the good stuff even though the good stuff realistically probably outweighs the bad stuff right and this is the thing that many of us do because the core belief is so strong that it overwhelms any level of rationality you know so I mean I've worked with clients who are overachievers they were you know they masters and the PhDs and the awards and the great jobs and you name it and pillars of the community and you know loved all over the place and none of us meant anything you know they couldn't accept a compliment if you gave them a compliment if I asked the person and say okay tell me three things that you like about yourself they couldn't tell me one because 
even though all of the evidence, the rational real world evidence was there to show what a good and successful and competent person they were, it didn't ring true with their core belief about themselves. So they just ignored it. And they just focused on the tiny little bit of stuff that was in line with the core belief and said, ah, no, there you go. You're not worthy. (laughs) See that little thing there. Ignore all the other stuff. Just focus on that little thing there because that is in line with the core belief, if that makes sense. I think it's a thing we generally do anyway. Not You don't even have to be in addiction or in recovery. And it's it's a big one in early recovery as well. I'm sure you've come across it where the client will come and say, like, I had thoughts around gambling and start beating themselves up around the thoughts. And you have to explain about the fact that we have 60,000, 70,000 thoughts per day. And it's, it's, it's a part of the process. And the actual whole crux of recovery is not to act on those thoughts and then to look at emotional regulation look at life balance so that we don't act on that and i think the one message i always try to give across and one or two have really taken on board is that it's okay we don't have to be okay all the time and i always remember a story in in the aftercare in in dublin where you know we used to have a small room i probably shared it before but we used to have a a small room about 10 15 people and majority in for you know alcohol aftercare once a week and every, you see people going on their different journeys and I'll never forget one, one particular person one night, they said, you know, what? I'm having a shit week. And he said it and he said, that's okay. I'm just about holding on, but that's okay for this week. And sometimes, you know, we, we think, oh, we should be, recovery should be this wonderful thing. And I always say it in, even in my own story that when I'm doing school talks, especially, you know, you come out of prison and, you know, everything, you think you're going to have the best year in your life. And you're saying, yeah, this this should be the best year. And here I am even using the word a lot, but it wasn't like it, the whole transition period was was difficult. And transition period in recovery is difficult. But we kind of think that it's the, this is the way because I've I've dealt with the addiction, because I've dealt with the punishment that was handed out because of the, because of my actions in addiction, that everything should be rosy now. But it's not, and that's the thing we have to keep in mind that. No, life will throw stuff at us. Um, recovery isn't that straight linear line. It is bumps in, in the road. It is kind of stop signs, left, right, off track. And, you know, like just to kind of hold on to that thought that, that it's okay if it isn't perfect all the time because it shouldn't be perfect all the time because life isn't perfect all the time. And it really is a important message to kind of get across in early recovery because we do put ourselves under huge pressure and we'll always focus on the one bad comment or the one negative thing rather than probably 10 or 11 good things. No, we, 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 no, people wake up having had a dream about gambling and they're beating themselves up over it. But we need to challenge that, I think, to be in good recovery. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that, that side of it is so important. And the, I suppose working towards some goal aspiration we were talking about the kind of maturity the last day and how aspirational that is and i suppose painting ourselves into a corner where if it's not perfect it's a total failure you know it's that again black or white thinking all or nothing thinking which albert ellis would have come up with before cbt it's it's part of that process where again it's one of your rules and assumptions about the world that things must be perfect or else they're, you know, totally flawed, right? which is not a realistic or a helpful way of looking at the world, you know, and some weeks clinging on is good enough and it's 
it's probably the best thing you can do <laughs> some weeks is to be clinging on rather than, you know, having to be the superhero version of yourself. Like some weeks you are not going to be able to do that. And some weeks the superhero version of yourself is the person who's clinging on for dear life. Yeah, you know, I remember, I remember even when I was in college, um, it was, I was doing my thesis the week that the book came out in 2018 and in the first year, I'd put myself under unbelievable pressure to get first and seconds or two, you know, first and seconds in my essays because I left school early. I'd, I'd left, um, I left after a year in the IT in Carlo and went out working. So because I'd gone back in, I was putting myself under unbelievable pressure. I have to be the best at this. And that's coming from a narrative wanting to please people. And from there then, um, you know, at what, at, at, I'll never forget, there was a kind of a turning point because the book was due out that week. My thesis was due in. We were doing the recording for All Bets Are Off at Baz on that Tuesday, and everything just came to a head. And I had to really just make peace with myself that, right, you're not going to get your firsts or your seconds in this particular essay. Now, I've probably done enough throughout the two or three years to do, get a good result. So that would probably took the pressure off a bit. Um, but I, was, I, I think what happened that week was that, you know what, it's okay not to get... You don't have to be perfect. It's just get through it. Like even getting through it is a huge um, achievement, given what you're after being through over the last couple of years. And that rings true now for any course I'm doing. I, I, I get into this mode where I put myself under unbelievable pressure to start. And then I kind of go, you know what? I just need to get through it. And that goes back to that just hanging on in that week. Because I, like, I don't have to be perfect at everything. Um, and I don't want to be perfect at everything. But that's, that's an old narrative that's probably still there. You know, you're, you're talking about conditioning that we would have touched on it's still there with me because of my previous failures or inverted commas failures because I left college or um, maybe even haven't, haven't gone through addiction and lost my job as well. You know, you put yourself under unbelievable pressure to get back to that level where you're at. So I think it's something that I had to make peace with. And it, it's amazing the difference is made in my life, making peace with that. And kind of, I don't have to be this. I don't have to be that. And you've probably seen it with me in our in interactions or, or conversations over the years where I put myself down or under pressure because I didn't do certain, something a certain way, or if you had a bad school talk, or you felt that you weren't at your best for a school talk, you'd be beating yourself up about that as well. So I think it's a big thing for me, and I think um, there would be an element of perfectionism in me that I kind of ha have chatted about to my supervisor, but there is an element of that in me, and maybe even touch of OCD. I wouldn't say clinical OCD, but definitely touch of tendencies that drive a behavior. Because I remember like for years, I could read a book and you wouldn't even know it's been read. And I'd nearly have to go and buy a second book if, I, if it got bent or if it got creased. Now I just crack it open and get it over and done with that market. So I'm after definitely improving over the years, but before it had to be a certain perfect way as well. Um, so I don't know if that makes sense in regards to what we're talking about, but definitely the first bit may, but maybe the second bit mightn't. Yeah, but there's a lot of shoulds and musts in there. You know, the book must be perfect. And if it's not perfect, I must then get a replacement book, which is perfect. And you're talking about the people pleasing, <clears throat> excuse me, which is a common trait with, that goes along with that core belief uh, of I'm not good enough. You know, if I'm not good enough, then I must jump through lots of hoops to make people like me because I, I'm starting with this handicap, you know. And that's, you know, all of these things drive the shoulds and the musts. I must engage in this behavior, even though most people, people pleasing comes up a lot in therapy. I'm sure you've come across it as well. It's, it's a common thing. You know, people often say unprompted without you asking them, I'm a people pleaser. They'll describe themselves 
as a people pleaser. So they know it's a bad thing, right? <laughs> they know it's a bad thing. They know very often that it's making them unhappy and yet find it difficult to stop, which is, it has a lot of parallels with addictions in and of itself. Uh, and that's because you're locked into the, the shoulds and must, driven by the, a, a core belief that's unhelpful or unhealthy, and then the thoughts that go along with that. Um, I'm just thinking, okay, so let's have a think about uh, a sentence where, because we let's go back to this thing where we put clients in that horrible box when they can't use should or must. I have loads of clients who will come back to me a few weeks later and they'll start saying some sentence with should in it. And they'll go, oh, no, damn it. <laughs> it's not easy to do. We all do it. It's a normal part of speech, but it, it's a very judgmental word like it's a it's a critical self-critical word that only really results in guilt like and if you can use that guilt to motivate yourself to go and do something that you actually want to do great you know then it's a useful tool if if it only serves the purpose of you continuing not to do the thing that you think will be better for you and feeling guilty then it's a lose-lose every way you go right so let's say chocolate bars, right? Let's say, you know, you mentioned chocolate bars early on and someone says, I should uh, give up chocolate bars for a week or for Lent, you know, for people who are listening from outside of Ireland. That's this weird thing that we do before Easter for 40 days where people give up sweets and lots of other things. So let's say I should give up chocolate bars for a week, right? Um, now, that is that kind of judgmental approach to it. And it's not particularly helpful because it's not a commitment to give up chocolate bars for a week. It's a hypothetical, you know, in the some parallel universe, there's some better version of me who, who gives up chocolate bars for a week. No, either you want to give up chocolate bars for a week and you're going to set about doing it, or you don't want to give up chocolate bars for a week and you're going to enjoy your chocolate bars guilt-free both of those will be healthier than they should so i mean is there a better way of 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 saying that you know if for the person listening there who's using a lot of shoulds and must to themselves is it better to say i i want to give up chocolate bars is that a healthier way of saying it or stop fooling yourself and be honest with yourself and say i don't want to give up chocolate bars enjoy them too much (laughs) you know or I'm choosing to give them up. Yeah, 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 absolutely. You know, like that's, you know, again, in the book, Irresistible, that I'm always banging on about, um, he says, like, it's, it's that whole thing of if you feel you can't have a bet, it's like that conflict. But if you say that you're choosing not to have a bet, you're taking some of the control back. Um, so I think it's a little bit like that if you're choosing to give up chocolate bars, but it's not as easy as that easy, you know, because the in, your internal voice will say, yeah, I should give them up next week or, you know, sure it's a choosing now you start off on a Monday. Like that's my big one. You know, once I get through Monday and have done Ash will start next week. So I think like, as I was saying, even last week at that book I'm reading at the moment or listening to David Goggins, he'll just say like, he, you know, he'll put post notes on a mirror and just say, like, just do it. Like instead of this, you know, pussyfooting around as he calls it, like just do it and just say, this is what you're going to do and stop just, I want you some of the language he uses. But um, he just, it's just like stop saying you shouldn't, shouldn't just say I'm going to do it or I, I'm, this is part of it. And I think it comes back to that thing I would have said before around that when I was at the conference over in, in England before where 
the fellas gave the two lines of a sentence that add, added two words. Like, you know, if you want it, you'll find a way. If you don't want it, you'll find an excuse. And the two words they added in was enough. So if you want it enough, you'll find a way. If you don't want it enough, you'll find an excuse. Now, I always tell a story in, in, in early therapy as well, because the word enough, like I wanted enough not to go back gambling because of the consequences, because of how it impacted me. But when it comes to chocolate bar, I, like I went through my journal through Coombera. Um, I found up in the, in the attic there a few weeks ago, and I just went through it. And on my last week, you have your kind of your goals, what you want to do when you go with treatment. The mine was, I'd love to, I want to lose weight. And 10 years on, I could still say the same thing. I still want to lose weight. So it's the, I don't think it's been important enough for me, whereas not going back smoking or going back gambling has been hugely important for me in life. So sometimes we have to kind of like, do we want it enough? And I suppose with me then as well, it's like if I was told if I don't, you know, if I don't stop eating chocolate bars, you're going to die in the morning. I'm sure if you if you feel your life is worth living, you're going to give them up because you have a reason to give them up. So sometimes we need to reframe it a little, a little bit. But then again, I'm probably not the best person to be talking about that because I still, I, I, I try ban the words should and shouldn't, but I use them a lot as well. So maybe I have to become more aware of that myself before I try to, um, you know, talk to clients about and maybe I need to look at self-care as well before I start to look at clients about as well. So I think there is a lot to learn in it because I do think when we fail at that should or shouldn't, no, I, I should, I shouldn't be eating bar chocolate or I should lose a stone or whatever. It does definitely, that it does definitely, you start beating yourself up when you don't achieve that. So we need to change the narrative, I think, which is a little bit harder than it, than it is, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, I'm not saying any of this stuff is easy, and certainly neither of us are perfect by any stretch of the ima- imagination. And there are many things that we could do to improve our physical and mental health, no doubt, uh, and uh, yeah, and improve our general well-being that we're not do- doing. And I suppose in the field that we work in, we know a little bit about that stuff. So it's not like we're ignorant of the things that we could be doing differently. We're just choosing not to do them. And I think that can be okay uh, to a degree if you're happy in your choice. It's when you're in that should place, you're on the fence where you're conflicted. We spoke, anybody wants to go back, we did an episode on on the stages of change model. And if you're in pre-contemplation, well, there's no problem. I'm just happily eating my chocolate bars. Everything's good. Packing on the pants. Don't care. (laughs) Having me chocolate bars or whatever it is. And then at some point, maybe you're kind of got your runner for the bus and you're going, oh, geez, hang on a second. <laughs> this is getting uh, a bit harder than it used to be. And maybe you start thinking, maybe I need to ease off on the chocolate bars or maybe I need to have a think about them. But you're still conflicted and you're, then now you're in this should place where I should cut back on that stuff, but you're not doing it. And, but sometimes the, the guilt or the kind of negative feelings around that will, will nudge you further along where you'll actually go into action and you'll, you'll start doing something about it. And you talk about Dave Coggins and the, the just do it, which is a good mindset to have because if you're in that ongoing, sometimes relentless and endless debate between the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder, you can be stuck there for a very, 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 very long time making no changes, right? Even though you really want to make the change, you're making no changes. So you know, picking a day, saying just do it, setting things up. There's a great book uh, by a guy called James Clear, uh, Atomic Habits, where he breaks this stuff down in a really, really clear, excuse the pun, way. There's no, there's a lot of self books out there that are just pure waffle. This is an actual handbook for how to to make behavioral changes. But he 
would say, you know, make it easy for yourself to, and enjoyable for yourself to succeed at the goal and make it difficult for yourself to fail at the goal, which is a lot of what we talk about in our work as well. You know, if it's around gambling, make it difficult to have a relapse, make it easy to stay in recovery. right? And that is a big part of it. But at some point, somewhere along the line, you got to go from those conflicted thoughts, the shoulds and the will I, won't I, into taking action, which is easier said than done. We're not saying that's easy. Well, certainly, I think we can help ourselves a lot more if we change the language around it. So, because if you want to, obviously, our focus is gambling. If you're listening to this and you're on the fence, uh, thinking about stopping gambling, if you try to change your language around it and remove the should and replace it with want or need, okay? If you want to stop gambling, do it today and put the and start putting changes in place. If you don't want to stop gambling, well, that's obviously up to you. And if and when the consequences start piling up, maybe that situation will change. But the should doesn't achieve anything other than making you feel bad about what you're doing. You know? And I think it should and must, from another perspective around gambling, can be big, big drivers of addiction, right? So if you look at chasing losses, which is probably the strongest indicator that somebody has a problem with gambling or that their gambling is getting out of control or unhealthy that could quite possibly be a belief that you must get your money back which realistically (laughs) there's no must about it you've lost it uh there's a possibility it's pretty slim that you get it back and we've had guests on here including uh, stacy goodwin a few weeks back back who won back all the money that she'd lost and more and sat there as if she'd lost all of the meaning in her life, having achieved the goal that she believed she was setting out to achieve and promptly lost the 50,000 almost straight away. So first of all, statistically speaking, extremely <laughs> unlikely. Uh, second of all, if you have a gambling addiction, you're gonna hand it back over, full stop, end of story. There's no two ways about it. But that belief that I am entitled to get my money back, I should get my money back, I must get my money back, and then I'll stop, which is usually the, the other lie that people tell themselves. That gets a lot of people into a lot of trouble. And it's probably the biggest thing that gets people into trouble around gambling. Or What do you think on that one, Tony? Yeah, definitely. I know I mentioned before, um, but Jody, who was on before, Jody Bechtold said, you know, that, and I love the quote over book, you wouldn't expect your money back when I was a restaurant or a, or a cinema or a pub. Or a concert, you wouldn't expect your money back, but we do. We we feel like we we must win our money back, or we have a right to have our money back in gambling, and that's the difference, I think. And that's where the conflict comes because it's painted as this entertainment, but our psychology is kind of like if I place a bet, it, you know, I don't know whether it's the must is the right word to use, but it, it, you know, if you don't win, as you said, I must, I, I'm due to get my money back, or I should have my money back, or I should, or that shouldn't have lost, or that should have won. So that can even lead into it as well. There's so many, I know we've mentioned the word a million times there, but there's so many different ways of looking at it um, because that drives the behavior, chasing losses and chasing wins as well. So I think if, you, if you, you're if you looking at gambling addiction, you're definitely looking at those kind of couple of words as well within it because that does definitely drive behaviors and thoughts and beliefs. And in recovery, as we know, we need to challenge those and put things in place to kind of um to ensure that we don't go back to that mindset. 
Yeah, no, it is an extremely important one. And there, there are these very rigid rules. Again, the must, like, once we're locked into an idea of must, we're in trouble. You know, that I suppose in CBT and in REBT, and even in the in Stoic philosophy, and I think some uh, in some of the Buddhist philosophies as well, they talk about preferences, right? I would prefer if I had all my money back, right? Is <laughs> very very different to I must get my money back. Of course, everybody who loses their money gambling would prefer to get it back, right? That's that's a no brainer. But there's a big big difference in language between I would prefer such and such a thing to to happen than this thing must happen, and I. You know, if you take it out of the gambling context for a second, start out talking about a common rule or assumption that a lot of people have is everyone must treat me with respect. You're in trouble there, right? <laughs> That's You're not living in the real world. That is never going to happen, right? And you're going to suffer a lot because you're struggling against reality with a rule or an assumption like that in your life, right? Whereas a healthier version of that will be, I would prefer if everyone I interacted with will treat me respectfully. If it's okay, you're just changing a word. You you spoke about, you know, ch- adding two words to the sentence earlier on. Is that great one? Say it for me again. Um just we're going blank now. Um if you wanted you'll find a way. If you don't yeah. want to find an excuse and add the word enough. If you want yeah. enough, you'll find a way. If you don't want enough, you'll find an excuse. Yeah. Words are important, right? The language that we use with ourselves is important, right? <laughs> Saying, and again, a lot of this stuff isn't conscious, right? So the rules and assumptions tend to be subconscious, but drive conscious thoughts. So, you know, the rule and assumption might be everyone must treat me with, with respect at all times, right? But the thoughts come and the feelings coming from that might be, you know, how dare he, you know, be like that towards me right let's say you're you're in a bar and maybe the barman's <laughs> I keep going back to barman we have a lot of experience in this bartenders and other people in service industry roles sometimes have a bad day maybe their dog died maybe somebody belonged them to, is belonged to them is sick maybe they're hung over which a lot of bartenders definitely would be or a million and one other things that could be going on for that person and maybe they're not as friendly or as courteous as you would like them to be right so you would prefer them to be more friendly and more courteous. Uh, and that's that's okay. It's okay to have that preference and, and that's fine. But if you live in a world in your head where this person must be super friendly and super courteous to you and all other people must be as well, you're going to be suffering, right? That's just not the way the world works. You have bad days. The people around you have bad days. You're not 100% respectful to all people at all times either. I can guarantee you that because nobody is. And if you're locked into that hard and fast rule, you're creating problems for yourself. Whereas if you can think in terms of preferences, you know, I would prefer if the person in the shop were nicer to me. That's, you know, that's easier to handle when they're not, you know, and it's a bonus when they are. Am I making sense on that one? Yeah, totally. And I think that it's that, I think you touched on there is that kind of expectation that, you know, or the awareness maybe that people can have off days and people will have, you know, will mightn't be their best version of self in your interactions. So like it's to be aware of that. And then 
that when that if that if and when that does happen that you don't go into your autopilot of kind of saying oh, this person's a this or that or the other. An example I will use with clients sometimes if you're walking down the street and and you know you're walking down the street and and you see a client and they're walking towards you and and you go to say hello and they walk straight past you and you're kind of saying you went to the whole thing oh I'm after having a bad session with them or I'm after saying something in the last session why didn't they say hello to me and then maybe they might cancel on you you know or not show up the next day and you go into this whole thing of I'm not good enough but if you look at the other side of the road then the person's walking towards you and running after getting a text message saying that a family member's sick or something or the dog is after dying to use your example and they're totally out of it they didn't even see it even though they looked at you didn't see it and they're oblivious to it all but how you internalize it and how they you know how they how you internalize how they react so I think it's it's the one thing that I've kind of learned or tried to learn in recovery is that we have to you know take that step back and I think Steve used the term perfectly press that emotional pause button and take a step back and look at well maybe it's this or maybe it's that and then if we can do that in that moment we, we won't react as strongly so then that you know that can be for for addiction work that can be triggering so you might go you know that could be you know you could be walking past the bookies down the road next thing i affect them it's going to go in so i think it's just a, a i hope i'm making sense in saying that i think it's yeah. the ability to be able to take us that step back and say right there, there is more than one scenario here and it's the same with the shoulds and shouldn'ts. There's more than one scenario. Like, you know, you have to kind of pick it apart and try kind of be aware of how you are within that. And, and if you have the ability to do that in recovery, in all aspects of recovery, just the, the ability to take that step back slightly, um, I think that can really, really help um, for the obstacles that we do meet. Yeah, and that's, that's a great point. And I suppose, the, the, I suppose why Albert Ellis described it as the tyranny of shoulds and musts is that it locks you into this kind of totally unflexible place where you can't think, well, maybe the person has just got a text saying their dog died or maybe they're having a bad day. There's a great, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, a great tutor of mine in counselling college uh, who used to always say, excuse before you accuse. You know, so if somebody blanks you in the shop or they blank you walking down the street or they blank you in the office, are they off with you? Or are there any other possible <laughs> reasons why they could be up in their own head, worrying about stuff, thinking about stuff, having a bad day, you know, is, is it the only possible reason? Because of course we're so egocentric. We think everything is about us anyway, that's normal. So that's usually the first thing that pops into our head. Oh, it's me. And they're pissed off at me. And that thing that that stupid joke that I made, and Oh God, I've gone too far. Blah, 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 spiraling off into, you know, catastrophic thinking, which we all have a tendency to do, or are there alternatives? But if you're in this tyrannical locked into this, tyrannical space of it it must be a certain way you don't have that psychological flexibility to go oh do you know what it could be you know they could be off with you that's one possibility not ruling that out but there are also other possibilities and once you start exploring those other possibilities it's going to dial down your stress levels you know reduce that kind of catastrophic thinking it's much much healthier i think um any more thoughts on the shoulds and musts tony just a just, I suppose, there's a great freedom in being able to take that step back and look at things um, differently. I think that's, I think, in life and in recovery, I suppose, I know we talk about recovery a lot because of the the nature of the podcast, like we call it recovery. But I think in life, if we can take that step out and change our, our internal shoulds and shouldn'ts, could have, should have, could have, would have, as we used to say years ago, if we can change that, I think we can definitely improve our lives in n- numerous different ways. 
Um, so I think it's vitally important in recovery, but also in life. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, recovery is life. Like recovery is more than just don't gamble, don't gamble, don't gamble, don't gamble. <laughs> recovery is how do I interact with my family members in a healthier way? We touched on it a little bit the last day around this maturity process and the, the transactional analysis stuff. And how do I interact with my coworkers? How do I interact with my friends? Like it, it, it's not just don't gamble right <laughs> yeah you know, i suppose there's that horrible word holistic which i think is being kind of given a bit of a bad rap in some ways but you have to look at your whole life you can't just kind of focus on one tiny little bit and say well as long as i'm not gambling everything's hunky dory right because if your goal is to remain in recovery and prevent relapse you need to try and find ways of finding balance in all the different aspects of your life. And if you're locked into rigid, tyrannical thought processes or unexamined core beliefs that keep driving you back towards maybe self-destructive behaviors, you know, it increases the risk for relapse. And the name of the game in our business is relapse prevention. But that's more than just you know, Gamban or self-exclusion or handing over the, the finances to your partner or whatever. It's lots of other things that are going to help prevent relapse by improving your life, improving your mental health, your well-being, how you see the world, all of that important stuff. Yeah, definitely, because I think the, the external cues to gamble are there. We are, we are all aware of them, advertisement. WhatsApp groups, everything, you know, like walking past the book of your casino. But I think it's the internal cues to gamble. And that is the, those internal voices that we were constantly playing in our heads. Um, and those internal voices probably use the word should and shouldn't more than we even verbalize it ourselves. So I think that's a huge, important part in recovery. It's kind of to, yeah, to recognize the external cues and use things like the brilliant apps like Gamban and, and you know, I know they have GamStop in the UK and, and you know, the different, um, my head's gone blank. No, just different um, things that are out there, like, you know, the blocking thing on Revolut, the blocking the gambling transactions, use all those for the external cues. But the internal ones, I, I feel, and haven't been in long-term recovery, I think they are the ones that I would worry about most, or they're the ones I kind of keep an eye on more. Um, and again, it's just continued to have that positive internal conversation with yourself rather than the negative one. And because for... for for all of us listening to this, a lot of us are stuck in that negative thinking or talking to ourselves a lot of times. So we can just change one or two words as we're talk as we have mentioned in this podcast. If we can just change one or two words, as we did in that example with the word enough, maybe we can start changing the way we think as well. Maybe just a simple exercise that we can start doing. Yeah, and I think that is worth trying. I mean, certainly it's when I started my training as a counselor. 14 years ago, something like that should was something that one of the tutors would have brought up early on. And then you, well, once you start thinking about it, you go, oh, hang on, I do use that word a lot. Is there another way I could say that that would be healthier for me and that would be more true to what my motivations are? Because if my motivation is to not, you know, or if my motivation is to continue eating chocolate bars or smoking cigarettes or you know, drinking alcohol or gambling or whatever it is uh, for the time being, well, then that's the truth, right? And you have a pretty good idea what the truth of your situation is. 
so why lie to yourself and why beat yourself up? You know, am I giving up chocolate bars this week? No, I am not. <laughs> am I going to eat some chocolate bars? Yes, I am. Will I enjoy the chocolate bars without feeling guilty? Yes, I will. Okay. And maybe this is not the week for you to give up eating chocolate bars. But at the same time, it's possible to say, well, look, I'm actually feeling motivated. Um, maybe it's the start of Lent or you're doing dry January or whatever it is. There's some external trigger uh, or you know, your partner is thinking about going on a diet or something. You go, okay, now now's the time to, to jump in and do this and take action. But when you're motivated to do it, take the action, but be honest with yourself about it and say, yes, I'm going to do this rather than I should do this and then not do it. <laughs> That's the worst of both worlds. You're still doing the thing. You're not getting the maximum amount of enjoyment from your chocolate bar because you're feeling guilty about it. And you're not stopping eating chocolate bars. Like So it's just a lose-lose <laughs> everywhere, if I'm making any sense there at all. Yeah, totally. You know, I know we're, we're sound, I think when we're talking, sometimes it feels like you're tying yourself up with the wording of it, and that even just shows you the word itself. But yeah, definitely, it's that whole thing of of making that conscious decision. And, and I think you mentioned earlier on, it's it's if the consequences aren't quite as bad for you in that moment, then you will you might make that choice. Yeah, I am going to stay eating for this week or next week. But then I think when, and that could be same could be said for gambling as well, because maybe you mightn't be feeling the consequences. But if you're starting, I think you you've often said it about gambling if you think it's a problem well then more likely it is a problem it's the same with that if you're thinking about it well maybe i need to kind of um look at my relationship with chocolate well then you know it's it's a it's that pre-contemplative mode you're gone from pre-contemplation into contemplation and then it's about taking the action and planning so i think that the planning can be the big word within there as well you know can i plan so that if i do get a craving that it's i have you know some kind of healthy snack in the fridge or in the press or whatever so i think i think it you can nearly the whole podcast that we've talked about the should or shouldn't you can nearly mold it into the wheel of change as well i think it's i think it's really important to kind of mold it in there and, and recognize what step you're at in regards to pre-contemplation contemplation action planning and then maintenance so i think it's it's important to kind of recognize yeah i am in contemplation and that's okay and sometimes that's the same with gambling if you're if you are in contemplation it's a step above pre-contemplation so at least you're aware of it so then at some stage you will make the the journey into the um into the action and planning from there yeah absolutely it does i think it, it ties in well with that um okay i, I think i'm just trying to think was there something else on this shows it must it is it is a it's a small thing but it's a big thing because it drives a lot of behaviors and it drives a lot of negative behaviors and it's really, you know, in cognitive behavioral therapy and in REBT, they talk about unhelpful thinking styles. It's probably the most unhelpful word in the English language. Right? You go back to Dave Goggins at the, the poster with the just do it. If you want to do it, great. Pick a day, stick to the day, do it, get the ball rolling, whatever the thing is, whatever the behavioral change is. If you're honest with yourself and you don't want to do it, then don't do it. <laughs> that's as simple as that but the should thing is just this mechanism for you know as Albert Ellis describes a tyranny a way to be trapped in this mental construct where we're constantly beating ourselves up about behaviors that we're engaging in or not engaging in you know a lot of the time it's I should do more exercise or I should do x y and z yeah, yeah. so 
Yeah, maybe it might work at the start of a sentence, um, like, you know, should Liverpool be united at the weekend? Not like on may lose his job. So maybe there is a way we could use it that can be a positive in regard to both Liverpool and United fans. Um, so we can probably, <laughs> we may have to cut that bit out, but um, yeah, I think that's the way we could use the word in a nice way. Yeah, yeah, they shouldn't. They most definitely should not, <laughs> but they probably will. That's the sound for it. No, okay. So if you're listening to this, we're just going to wind it up there today. Try, just try it. Just try it as an exercise. You will be amazed at how many times you use the word should during your average day. I guarantee you, if you, once you just kind of lock it in there and go, okay, I'm going to try and catch myself using should in sentences and try and think of different ways to say what I want to say without using the word should, because it brings a real degree of honesty in what you're saying, right? I should give up cigarettes. Okay, yeah, everybody should give up cigarettes. They're really, really bad for people. They kill half the people who smoke them. It's, you know, that's a no-brainer. That doesn't mean I want to give up cigarettes today or tomorrow or whatever it is. And it doesn't mean I don't want to give up cigarettes. It's just this weird, unhelpful gray area where you, you just end up feeling bad about yourself. So Take the time, if you can, we're dropping this little seed into your brain now, <laughs> dear listener. Right? Try and catch yourself using the word should and think what is a more honest way for you to say that same sentence, right? It's a really, really useful exercise, right? Try it out. And uh, yeah, of course, uh, no, no masturbating. That's important as well, because you could go blind. Um, OK, let's knock it on the head there for today. Uh, I should be able to do an edit on that. I think it's interesting because it's a trap. Like the, the shoulds and must thing is a trap and it's an invisible trap that you know, the vast, vast majority of us have no concept of the fact that we're in it until somebody says, Okay, try and say that thing you just said without using the word should. And then you're like, <laughs> you realize that you're contorted and tied up in knots mentally uh, once somebody points that out to you. I think there's huge value in that because shows of us are not helping any of us, unfortunately. Um, all right, let's wind it up there for today and uh, tune in next week where God knows what we'll be talking about. <laughs> Bye. 